You're listening to 92Y Talks. The world mourned the passing of comedic icon Joan Rivers in September 2014. Her beloved daughter and on-screen partner in crime, Melissa Rivers, sat down to honor her mother's memory in a candid conversation with the Today Show's Hoda Kotb. She outlines her outrageous memories of growing up with her mother, life lessons, and healing through laughter that gave her the strength to write her new book, The Book of Joan. The conversation was recorded on May 12, 2015, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Wow! There's a lot of people! Hi, everybody! Hi! And I want to thank you, first of all, for doing this with me. For you, Melissa, anything. Thank you. Okay. I just want to ask you guys something in the audience first. Just yes. one, one quick question. How many people have ever had to say goodbye to their mom? Just raise your hand, I want to see. And how many people worry about saying goodbye to your mom? Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about something we all have in common. Yes. Which is losing uh, a parent, losing your mother. Mm -hmm. What was that like, Melissa, for you, living through the death of your mom? Um, you know, I'd already lost my father mm -hmm. when I was young, when I was 18. And the only way I've been sort of able to get my head around the difference, because when my mom passed, I felt mostly anxiety because I felt like I knew the tidal wave of grief that was coming at me. Mm -hmm. It's different this time. It's, as I keep saying to people, losing your first parent is a comma. Losing your second parent is a period. Hmm. It's a very different dynamic. And I, I didn't realize that probably until about six weeks after. But, um, Losing anyone. It's a hole, it's a void. It's, for me, it, it hits me when I land somewhere off an airplane and I go to pick up the phone and that's the one person who really does want you to call and wake them up in the mm -hmm. middle of the night and say that you got there. You know <laughs> right, what I mean? I right. mean, I love my boyfriend, but he doesn't really want me to call at three in the morning. <laughs> you know? Well, and it must have been weird because I, when I was watching all the Mother's Day stuff going on, right. it's so funny, I was thinking about you. I said, because I know how a lot of people are posting pictures with their mom and spending time with their mom. How was that Sunday, that weekend? Um, I'm very good at holding things at bay. Yeah. But I made sure that I, first of all, so many people reached out to say, do you need to go somewhere? Do you want to say, I spent it with my son. Mm -hmm. As I always said, we had brunch at the house and a couple friends came over for brunch. And just like, I laugh because, do we have any mothers in the audience? <laughs> <laughs> I laugh because this is, this is one of those things that always gets to me. We had, my son plays lacrosse and we had, we're in spring playoffs. So guess what we had on Mother's Day? What? Playoffs. Of course you did. And it's always amazing because we have yet to have a game on Father's Day. <laughs> Any mom with a kid who plays sports, look back. It's true. There will never be a game on Father's Day. <laughs> so I actually got to spend half of Mother's Day in an area called El Segundo, uh -huh. which is also known as LAX, um, at a lacrosse game. Okay. With a bunch of other grumpy mothers and fathers who were scared and stood at the far end of the field because they knew how pissed off we all were that our day was spent at lacrosse. Now, a lot of your friends obviously were coming up to you, checking on you yes. to see how you were. How were you about, about your mom on that, on that particular day? It was harder for me on Saturday, not so much on Sunday. I think I was so prepared and so focused on Cooper yeah. on Sunday that Saturday night I fell apart. Because I'm like, oh, I just don't want tomorrow to happen. I just don't want tomorrow to happen. I don't want to have to deal with tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I have to give it to my son. He, he pulled it off. He was spectacular I remember, on Sunday. I remember seeing you at your mom's uh, service, mm -hmm. your, the memorial service. And it was first, it was beautiful. It was, it was full of love. It was full of humor. It was all the things it was, I'm sure it was, that she would have wanted. As right? I like to say, you'll laugh, you'll cry, two thumbs up. You know what I mean? <laughs> what, when you woke up on that morning, because you, know, you wonder about days like that. Mm -hmm. When you woke up, do you remember that morning before anything happened, when you opened your eyes? That's right, I haven't even thought about that day till just now. Um, I just, I was in so in producer mode that I was just go, go, go. My biggest fear, and this is gonna sound so bizarre, was being dressed and ready too early because I knew as soon as I was dressed and ready, I wanted to walk out the door. I didn't want to linger, I didn't want to sit down, I didn't want to rest, I just wanted to go. Mm -hmm. 
I just wanted it to go and I just wanted it to be over. over I just want, I just needed it to be over. Mm -hmm. And you know, all that love and outpouring and support, because mm -hmm. I know everyone wanted to hold your hand and to help you. Mm -hmm. And then there comes a time for any of us who've, who've lost a parent where that fades away because everybody has a life and they go back to their life and you are left with y y your memories. Yes. Um, was, that, was that a difficult transition, I guess, in there, Melissa? Um, you know, it was, a, it was a difficult transition, but in a very strange way, um, which I'm finding out actually happens to a lot of people. Huh. Um, it got to the point where I couldn't keep going to these dinners and these lunches and these yeah. breakfasts because I couldn't absorb anyone else's grief. Hmm. Everyone wanted to sit and talk and are you okay and what happened and oh, I loved her and oh, this. And it was fabulous to know she's so loved, but at one point I just was like, I can't absorb anyone else's grief anymore. I have to have a minute for my own. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to feel the void. Mm -hmm of missing my mom. And it was funny because when we started to do, I have, our assistant's been with us for 26 years, Sabrina. And so I we used to, and this sounds horrible, but it's really not, I used to group the lunches and dinners. What do you mean? So like everybody who was so wonderful and wanted to go out and talk and talk and talk about my mom. Oh, you'd bring I would do together. like three together at lunch and then three at dinner. <laughs> so I started like grouping them and I would do like a day of a breakfast or lunch and the dinner and then like take two days off and then mm -hmm. do another breakfast, lunch and dinner and take two days off. Because at one point, you know, it, it just, you, you, you can only absorb so much. Well, I think the interesting thing about your mom, I know for a lot of you who've met Melissa's mom, met Joan, she connected with everyone. Everyone. Everybody. There was a guy, I mean, I felt like she knew me. She'd see me and she'd ask me about my boyfriend yes. and how's it going and you felt like she remembered. There was a guy, there's a guy named Larry who works over at Sirius Radio and he told me, he said, you know, I had heart surgery years ago and that, like a few weeks later, Joan came up and said, I heard you had heart surgery, show me your scar. And the guy like <laughs> opened up his shirt. Years later, she came back. He said his last interview with her before she passed. I know exactly who it you is. You know who he is? Yes. She walked up to him so many years later and said, hey, Larry, show me your scar. So because she connected, people look at you, Melissa, and you're the closest thing we have. Yes. Right? Yes. So we want to tell you and share with you and hold your hand and feel connected. And but that's a lot. That's a lot. And I don't think what everybody realizes is the amount of love and outpouring from her friends and from the entertainment community and from her fans yeah. was so overwhelming and humbling and felt mm -hmm. that nothing more could be said. <laughs> it really, it, it, overwhelming in such a positive way to go, and for Cooper to say, and we talk about it all the time, about legacy. Mm -hmm. She touched people. Mm. And that's such, when I get down, that's what I think about. Mm -hmm. She made a legitimate difference on a personal level with so many people. The very first time you went to dial her number and you realized you couldn't, mm -hmm. who did you call? Um, I didn't call anybody. I, friends of mine had a house out of the country, in Mexico actually, and they called and they said, there's a plane ticket waiting. You have to go away. You, you, for four days, you've got to disconnect. You're going crazy. And my, I guess we were sort of dating my boyfriend now, but we were very good friends. Anyway, it's a long, stupid story. Anyway. <laughs> we have time. We've got time. <laughs> anyway, we were in, he went down with me and we, we were in the car, we had landed at LAX, and we were driving back to my house, and he called his parents to mm. say that he had landed. Mm. And I went to pick up the phone, and I realized I didn't have my mom to call. And I can tell you exactly where we were on the freeway. We were just pulling out of the tunnel, the McClure Tunnel on PCH, for anyone who's from LA. And I started to cry, and I realized I had no one to call. And he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, no, I'm not. Mm. I'm not okay. And so I 
pulled it together and got out of the car, and my child was bitter. He's 14, so bitter's normal. Um, <laughs> he is. He's like, I have a good kid, and he's still 14. I just want to put it out uh, Teenagers are vile little creatures in general, on the whole. <laughs> if I have to make a sweeping statement about them. And I have a good one, and I say that. You know, and I had to pull it together because I had to walk into, you know, Mr. Bitter that he didn't, you know, couldn't take off school to go to Mexico for three days. Like, get over yourself. But isn't... <laughs> you know, mommy's having a breakdown. You don't need to witness it. <gasps> Good mommy her pills and her drink. <laughs> are, are we hearing Joan right now? I can feel <laughs> channeling through you. No, n- Cooper's one of these kids who everyone who meets him obviously loves him. And Joan had such a way with him. You write about it in your book, their yes. connect. They had a really unique connect, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yeah. Well, first of all, my mom lived with us three days a week. So there was never sort of that generational divide between the two yeah. of them. And we always joke, the only person that ever knocked me off the pedestal was Cooper. Cooper could, well, he, he could do wrong. But there's the old joke, why do grandparents and grandkids get along? Mm-hmm common enemy. Yeah. <laughs> How you doing? Um, and they just lived to, you know, she lived to undermine everything in my life. Besides, like, she'd move, anyone who watched the show knows she used to move my furniture, and she'd, you know, <laughs> if she didn't get her way, there'd be a lot of sulking. And that was her partner in crime. And that's who, because I'm a single parent, when he was in trouble with me, he'd run to her. her. Yeah. So um, Now, do you find, because she, she gave him a lot of slack, she let him do some of the things he wanted, eat what he wanted, do you find yourself in her absence letting him breathe a little more? I did in the beginning, and he worked it. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, he knows, he, he is partially his grandmother. He worked that system. Um, <laughs> this reminds me of a funny story that's actually not in the book. Cooper wanted a bird. This was a couple years ago, and I was like, no birds, no birds, no birds, no birds, no birds. And my mother's like, oh, just get him a bird. And she goes to him, she goes, I'm going to get you a bird. I said, really? It's my house. Like, you're a guest. She's like, it's our house. I'm like, no, it's my house. You're a guest. But that never worked with her. So, of course, then we eventually got, I said, you have to do a presentation to prove you're responsible. So he did, like, a whole PowerPoint on the birds. And then we go to the store and he's like, so you're going to get me a bird? I said, yes. He goes, well, grandma's going to get me one too. So does that mean I get two (laughs) Two birds? (laughs) Because they, you know, it needs a friend. You don't want it to be lonely. Like she had prepped him. She's like, you know, you can't be by himself. I'm like, okay. And then there's a side story about one of these birds, which I will tell you in a minute. And so then after my mother passed, you know, about six weeks, Amy's like, so I went to the bird store. And I saw another bird, and I just, I, it really liked me. I'm like, it's a bird. <laughs> and he wanted it, and it was just ridiculously priced. And I'm like, just give it to him. Luckily, that bird got sold, but he managed to actually then get the bird he really wanted because it was less expensive. Like, he worked the whole <laughs> system. So he could get, get what he this. wanted. Now we have three birds. Now- <laughs> I also have the world's most expensive parakeet. What? Okay, so one of these parakeets... Um, you know, they're like 35 bucks. Yeah. They're not like a big investment, but it's the cage and all that. So the one, the little right one is sick. So now it's the middle of the night and I'm looking for an emergency bird vet. Um, because, oh my gosh, she's sick like that. And we're animal people. So of course I'm right. like, so we put her in a little cage and we take her to the emergency vet and they put her in a little bird oxygen tank. I'm not exaggerating. Oh. They have put her in a little oxygen thing. And, oh yes, she's definitely sick. And we have to monitor her overnight. <laughs> And then they have you sign an advanced directive <laughs> for your pet. So I'm signing an advanced directive for a parakeet. And I'm like, uh, Coop, you know, he's like, they have to try and save her. I'm like, okay, so yes, take all heroic measures necessary. And they hand you the estimate, right? So now I'm like, I don't even want to, I'm like $1,500 in to a $35 parakeet. So I... We go home. They call me the next morning. She needs to go to a specialist. Oh, my. So, but she survived the night. So I, he, I say, you know, okay, we got to take her to the specialist. Now I got to find the bird specialist. They track down the bird specialist. I called to make an appointment. She can't see me in the morning. It has to be in the afternoon because she's doing a CT on a hamster. <laughs> um, I already know I'm in huge trouble. Um, so I, Simnago Cooper, at one point we're going to have to... Yeah. Draw the line. Like, we're not going to keep spending money on the parakeet. And I tell my mom how it's just like, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And I, you know where this is going. I'm like, this is ridiculous. She goes, so I call, 
I call my mom, I'm like, okay, I'm drawing the line. She's like, absolutely draw the line. So he calls grandma. Oh. And I get the, she gets her on speaker, they go, and he's crying, you can't let her die. <laughs> and my mom's like, Melissa, you gotta take her to this way. You can't let her <laughs> die. I'm like, oh, criminy, here we go. So we pick her up, so we take her to the bird specialist, where again, you sign an advanced directive. <laughs> and you know, parakeets are like this big. Yeah. And they need to do a throat culture, <laughs> x-rays, and potentially an MRI. <laughs> and again, they hit you with the estimate after you sign the advanced directive, which is, please take, you know, a little, like, clear, you know, like, what are you gonna do with my parakeet? And she's back in the bird oxygen tank, and they have to sedate her to do the whole thing, but apparently when she was sedated, she passed whatever she had eaten. Oh, I thought she passed. Okay, no. good. No. I was worried. I almost passed when I got the bill. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so my mother has now saddled me with the world's most expensive parakeets. Do you still, I know your mom told you what to do a lot. Yes. How to be, what to wear, how to speak, all that. Do you still hear her now when you're saying and doing things? Do you feel your mom's presence? I feel her when I'm going to do something that I know she won't like. Such as? I don't know, maybe use table mats that she didn't think were my best ones. Yeah. I mean, literally, I hear, like, I, I, I lay in bed at night and think, I need to put a lightning rod on this house. Because <laughs> I've done something somewhere along the line, she's going to be throwing bolts at me at one point. Um, no, I only really hear it to, one time for sure where she said, it's going to be okay. I felt like this sort of calm, like it's going to be was, all when right. When was that? Do you remember? During all the fashion police crazy. Oh. I heard her say some other things too, but I can't repeat those. <laughs> just take it for what it is. <laughs> I want to get to that fashion yeah. place crazy. Why don't we do that now? Just because I do think it's such an interesting thing. I was, when I was watching it unfold on TV, I wondered about you. <laughs> you and me both. Because I thought, I wonder if Melissa is just itching to get in there and say something because you're watching your mom's, your show and your mom's show, but your mom was really the matriarch. You're watching it kind of crumble. Mm -hmm. Did you want to get in there and say something or try to I do did. something? You did. I did everything I could do. Um, people have this sort of, and it's, it's, it's a strange sort of dynamic is yes, I am the executive producer and one of the creators of the show, but it is owned by the network. Right. So I can make all the suggestions that I want the bottom line is the network who signs our checks and same network that signs your checks. Yes, indeed. They really do. Whoever, well, I always say whoever signs your check is your boss. Yep. That's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very, very difficult time. Yeah. And I had a lot of conversations with everybody involved. And um, it's like what you and I talked about before, which is it really shows that we were a family. Yeah. And it was cast and crew and staff. And we went back too fast. And just like a family, when the matriarch dies, the sisters started fighting, mm -hmm. and someone tried to marry in. Mm -hmm. Not a great match, live and learn. Um, it was extremely frustrating because I had to keep my eye on the franchise and the legacy of it uh -huh. and not get involved in the personal. Because it's interesting, I think everyone everyone has somebody in their family mm -hmm. who is the one who gets everyone together, right? There's somebody who, during Thanksgiving, they're the one who manages to get the whole family mm -hmm. together, even though everyone's all splintered mm -hmm. off. And that almost seems in a kind of a way like your role, doesn't it? Like, yes. Like someone who, who has a good way of saying, okay, you don't love her and you don't love him, but let's all get together and make something work. Yes. Is that still a possibility? Um, you yes. Think? You do? I, I do think it's a possibility. I think, um, I just know that I don't want to go through the unhappiness yeah. that I went through for those few months again. And I think a lot of it, and I didn't realize it till the very end of it, was I felt like, you know, Fashion Police was this little jewel. And it was the last piece I had of my mother and I working together. Hmm. And I felt like, all these people were so out of control, including the one who made the allegations of racism. They took the last thing I had and smashed it. And I felt like it was like, an, like Humpty Dumpty. And I like, felt like I was on my knees gluing it back together or trying to at least find the pieces. 
So I think, you know, I had to take a little bit of a break. We've just started creative meetings again now to um, reformat and come back. What do you think Joan's thinking looking at that? It never would have happened if she was alive. What do you think she's thinking looking down at the shards? I think there might be a little bit of a twinkle in her eye saying, y'all couldn't do it without me, could you? <laughs> Um, and then after that, I think she would be, um, I think she'd be a little bit frustrated. Yeah. And the thing is, what everyone else was saying, I mean, we all said the same thing. It never would have fallen. If something like that had happened and my mother had been alive, she would have gone, the, her reaction immediately would have been, are you serious? Oh, please. All this over a wig? Yeah. Literally, it was a, it was a wig. Let's just all relax. Right. And... Unfortunately, you know, it, ne it never would have happened. She would have called Juliana and yelled at Juliana. She would have called Kelly and yelled at Kelly. Right. And, and said, stop it. Right. And she would have listened to them both cry and complain about each other. And she'd be like, okay, hey, is everyone over it? Now let's go to work and make yeah. a funny show. And then Kathy Griffin never would have been a part of it. Exactly. Were you glad she was a part of it or not? <laughs> is anyone recording anything? <laughs> Cell phone's off. Exactly. I'm just going to say it wasn't a match. Yeah. On a lot of levels. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And um, my biggest complaint was the feeling that she kind of shit all over my mother's legacy in her statement on leaving. Mm -hmm. And I know that that was not an intentional reading of it. But that's how I felt. Mm -hmm. But I know that wasn't what, how it was intended. Everyone, everything was so heightened and everybody was so crazy but that's what, that was my takeaway by calling the comedy and the, tech and the style of it old-fashioned. Yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, don't, I, don't. I, I understand what you're doing. You're trying to save yourself. Right. But don't crap all over my mother. Right. To do it. Yeah. And that's how I felt. And that was very personal. But as a professional, that was her choice. That's what she did. No harm, no foul. It didn't work. Moving on. Your professional life, I was just listening to your intro. I mean, you have a lot of new things that are already, yeah. you're already cooking with. You're oh, doing yeah. some stuff with ET. You're busy. How do you envision your career? Because we're, we're so used to seeing you as part of a duo. Yes. And I'm just trying to picture you on your own. But I was a duo in front of the camera and oh. also a single person in front of the camera is that the duo, the team, was the best known. Yes. You know, you, you heard Joan and Melissa. You knew what you were getting. Mm -hmm. But as a producer, she's never been... And my partner in any of sure. that, you know. Sometimes I'd, she'd make a suggestion, and I would say, "Mm-hmm, thank you," and then I would either <laughs> use it or not use it. And then, you know, she would be like, "That was my idea." I'm like, "Yes, it was. I love you. You're so fabulous." Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a void. I'm yeah. trying to, and as I, you and I talked about, I'm trying to find my voice as a performer. I was a straight man. Yeah. And yeah. at the wake, I actually went up to or the shiva, whatever you want to call it. Um, I just called it people eating. <laughs> what did I say in the book? Apparently overwhelming grief causes low blood sugar, especially in Jews. I have never seen people go through deli platters like that in my life. In the hospital, they come to say goodbye and have their moment and they're sobbing and eating full cups. Seriously, man, our people can eat. You know, and there's, oh, really, it's your thyroid. That's where you're heavy. No, it's because you've eaten six bagels. God, and that was at a Jewish hospital. Those at Mount Sinai, and even they were like, oi, that Rivers group can eat. Um, you know, and my friends still, you know, my college friends are like, free food. <laughs> and, and, you know, and entertainment people, even oh, no, worse. Kidding, they put yeah. out, because we never know when our next meal is coming. <laughs> right. Because we're always eating craft services, and everyone always forgets to feed you. So all the entertainment people, when they came, they saw the spread. And they were just opening the bags and throwing it in. <laughs> well, the worst is, have you ever seen press people hit a free? Yes. Oh, yes. Watching the press hit a free uh, buffet? Is Keep your fingers out of the way. If you get a chance to listen to Melissa's audiobook, <laughs> which is what I did, it brings this book to life. It, you, the way you deliver this, Melissa, and I was, I was in the gym. I didn't want a workout to end, which shows you how good the book was, because I'm always ready for that to end. Oh, we all are. You were, you were just amazing that way. Thank was you. writing this book... And writing it so soon after, that, was that a cathartic experience? What did it feel like? Would you like the media-trained answer or the real I'd answer? I'd like the real answer. Okay, I'll give you that. The media-trained answer was, yes, it was cathartic. <laughs> yeah. 
And that's why I did it, and it came from my heart. Um, the real answer is no, they did not. My publisher, my editor, did not hand me her card at the funeral. Yeah, we read that. Yeah. yeah. Everyone keeps going, is that real? I'm like, come on. They waited until I got in the car and then slipped it through the door. <laughs> and they didn't do it as I was going up the aisle. And um, they came to me and said, would you want to write? And I said, no, I'm not writing a memoir. This is not a memoir. I'm not writing a memoir. And then they said, well, how about something about advice from your mother? And I'm like, mm, I don't really think. You know, I'm an only child. I think my parents quit while they were ahead. You know what I mean? <laughs> and didn't take a second shot at really messing up another human. Um, so I uh, oh, advice, well, maybe, okay. And then they told me how much they were going to pay me. And I said, I can do this. Did you hear your mom's voice? I heard my mother going, can I swear? You did already. Okay, but so I yes. heard my mother in my voice going, are you a fucking asshole? Grab it! <laughs> be, be sad later. Yeah, 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 you're sad. Now take the check. But the thing was, it's true. Well, see, my mom always had a joke that she wanted to write a book called Comedian Dearest. Oh, she did? She did. For those of you who don't know, there was a very famous book called Mommy Dearest, which was sure. the first sort of expose by a child in Hollywood about their horrible parent. It was Christina Crawford writing about Joan Crawford. It was called Mommy Dearest. And she wanted, me to, she wanted to write uh, Comedian Dearest and put it in her safety deposit box. So that, as she would say, as soon as her head hit the floor, I'd have a manuscript ready to sell. <laughs> and she said, I don't care what people think. I'm already dead. What does it matter? So I had no qualms about, you know, like literally I was like, I can't. I'm grief-stricken. Yeah. And I literally was like, oh, shit. I'm gonna, I will literally be haunted by a small little blonde Jewish angry woman. <laughs> if you didn't do it. If I don't do it. Coming up with the stories and reading some of them, I mean, they were amazing. I mean, I remember, I was just thinking of the one, because I saw you as a baby, where your parents gave you as yes. a baby to Johnny Carson. Again, it's probably a good thing they only had one child. <laughs> Tell this, that story, because that's a good one. Um, my mother's big break was on The Tonight Show, and through her being on The Tonight Show is how she met my father, so... My parents were like, we really owe everything to Johnny. And for his birthday that year, they're like, what do we get him? What do we get him? What do we get him? And my parents came up with the idea um, <laughs> of giving me to Johnny. So they dressed me up and sent me with the nanny and with a note pinned to me saying, dear Mr. Carson, my parents don't, uh, my, my parents don't know how to thank you for everything you've done for them in their lives. So they wanted to give you your, their most prized possession, <laughs> me. <laughs> and apparently the story goes that, obviously they showed up to pick me up, um, you know, that he helped me through a writer's meeting. So, but again, abandonment so early. And twice in one day, he gave me back. I mean, really, and you wonder why my therapist twins are going through college on my dime. <laughs> going, going through and trying to pick the stories, I mean, look. It was, it, joking, it was incredibly it? cathartic. It gave me permission to laugh. Did it? Yeah. When was the first time you remember laughing after your mom passed? Probably about 15 minutes after. And I was by myself with her. They'd given me some time. And I started to laugh because all I could think about was my father. And what a f crappy day he must be having. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, she's here and she's pissed. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she is here and she is pissed off. <laughs> Oh. And I started to giggle. Yeah. Because as much as my mother, and we talk about suicide a lot in our family, and we're part of Suicide Survivors proudly supporting that group and, and being part of that community. Um, she forgave him, and she dealt with it, but honestly, she really never completely got past the anger. She didn't. No. Yeah. So, and that was a very private thing that she really didn't share. And that's one of the things that people find out about a little bit in the book, was that was something she never talked about. But that's like, it was, oh man, my dad's having a fucking bad day. <laughs> she is here and she is pissed and she probably has two glasses of wine in her already and she's looking for him. 
that's all I, oh and I started God. to giggle. Um, your mom is always was a matchmaker for you. She was always looking for somebody for you. A wasn't bad she? matchmaker, yes. A bad matchmaker. So I know you're with someone. Yes. You have a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. But um, so what? She already knew this guy you're dating. We have been friends for I guess now almost three years, two and a half years, three years. So you didn't trust her vetting process, by the way, when she... What vetting process? <laughs> her vetting process was asking for his financials. <laughs> so she didn't even look up, just slide him across the desk, look, okay, you're fine, go. Who did she like of all the guys you dated? Who, did, who, was, who was one of her favorites? None of them. None of them? None of them. I mean, she loved my ex-husband. Yeah. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> He's my ex-husband. She couldn't be like, oh, I love him. So, I mean, she did. She cared about, she actually cared for him tremendously. Okay. He actually came to New York when she was, uh, when she was ill. Okay. Um, so I take that back. She actually cared for him tremendously. Mm -hmm. um, they were all fine. Mm -hmm. You know, if I was happy, she was happy enough. You know what I mean? She had the saying, which is so true for anyone who has children, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's really how, how it went. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were a few that were very wealthy that she was like, what, you can't get past? He has bad table manners? I'm like, I can't eat a meal with him. She goes, so you'll be skinny. I'm like, I can't get past it. She's like, I'm like, he smacks his lips. She's like, where are your plugs? She was old-fashioned in so many ways. Very it, much so. Wasn't, I found that so fascinating about everything from manners mm -hmm. to the man should pay for the check and mm -hmm. never pay, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, some, when you think of her, a lot of people see her as, as this trailblazer, but she did have that other side. And she didn't, she didn't think of herself as a feminist. Yeah. She just thought of herself as her, and you just went and you did it, and whether you were a man or a woman didn't matter. Yeah, there are times in high school, like, you know, they would never do this to a man. Right. But it was never like, I am woman, hear me roar. Mm-hmm. Looks were something that she was concerned about. You think? She, she never. <laughs> she, she, she thought, what, her sister was the, was the cute one? Her sister was the pretty one, her sister was the smart one growing up. So was it painful for her? Was it just, did it just turn into a, a, a something she joked about in her act and it was funny? No, she never felt she was attractive. She felt she was fine. She felt, her big thing with people was, you should be the best you can be. Mm -hmm. And that meant across the board. And to not be, um, don't delude yourself as a woman that men really care about how smart you are. She's like, men are stupid. <laughs> it's true, sadly. As one of my very good friends from college said, why are you so angry all the time at men? We, it's not our fault we have a Y chromosome. Mm -hmm. It's just what we are. Right. Um, she just believed that and it's a little bit old-fashioned that, that you should be able to work and be a success and do all those things and still look good. Mm -hmm. She felt that was sort of part of the job. She actually thought it was part of the game. Mm -hmm. And she's like, the smart women, no. Does that make you lean into plastic surgery and things like that that she did or, or lean back, lean away? Um, I wouldn't say I lean forward or lean back. I would say her like enough. Like mm -hmm. seriously, you've lost your mind, you look amazing. Mm -hmm. But it's true, we all see, yeah. we don't see what others see. And that was very much a problem for her. She finally, at about at 80, she felt she looked good. No, I'm not kidding. Funny? She literally once said, "You know what? For 80, I look pretty good." Wow, wow. And then oh. she pointed. Then we were driving in my car in direct sunlight, and she's like, "This is getting a little sad." <laughs> and she's like, "I'm not going to tell you who is. No one will ever be honest with you. None of your friends. They're all competitive." All right, I know a lot of people in the audience have questions for Melissa, so why don't we raise the lights and see who's got one? Anyone? Huh? Hi. Hi. Or, oh, are I taking them right here? Oh, this is oh. how it goes. Sorry. Oh, this you is You can yell it out if you want, but why? All right. Any plans to do something with Joan's catalog of jokes, the exhibit? That's a good <laughs> question. Yes. Um, we have created, finally, they were never on a database. So they were all index cards. Yes, it was like, for those of you who are too young to know, you used to go to the library, as I have to explain to my son, and you had to go through these little cards. <laughs> and you had to pull out the card. Um, we finally just finished having the entire database archived, photographed, wow. recorded. I want to say there were something like 76,000 unique oh. and like 82,000 with cross-referencing. I mean, it's, it's absurd. Uh, so I just finished with that part of the project, and I don't know 
what you're going to do yet. What I'm going to do with it. I've given away two cards, and the only two people who are receiving personal cards, one was Jimmy Fallon. Wow. And the other one was Howard Stern. Wow. Howard got the, one of the, uh, the, basically the joke that he started her service with. Yeah. Which was about having a dry vagina. <laughs> that, was, um, that was so funny. <laughs> so good. I actually wrote a note to the rabbi apologizing. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, I know we sort of just ran amok all over Temple Emmanuel. I'm like, seriously? I'm so sorry. Like, thank you for bearing with us. We know we're insane. And then uh, I gave Jimmy one because he brought her back to The Tonight Show. And he apparently was a... Thank you. That must have been... Was that such... I mean, tell, how impactful was that for Joan? It turned out that I think it was the 40th or 30th, 40th anniversary, just by yeah. happenstance, of her very first Tonight Show appearance. Huh. And there was no planning it. It just happened that way. And she walked in and she realized it was the entrance that she walked in that very first night. Oh, my gosh. So it was, it was emotionally loaded. Wow. Okay. So I don't know what I'm doing. I'll either go to the Smithsonian or the Museum of Broadcasting or... My house, I don't know. I'm borrowing your glasses. It's okay, but it's a, you gotta look through the bottom. They're the blender. Oh, yeah, here they go. Sorry. Okay, okay. recently for Record Store Day, there was a reissue of one of your mom's CD recordings. Were you part of that? Why that one? Okay, no, I was not part of it. Um, somebody else was? had bought the catalog right. from whatever, whether I think it was RCA at the time, whatever it was, and they reissued it. I thought it was so interesting how, how much your mom rehearsed. Like, she studied the jokes. A lot of people say, I'm just going to get up there and wing it. Your mom never, ever no. was that woman, was no. she? To a point. She was methodical <clears throat> in her preparation, but she tells a story in her documentary about how George Carlin, literally, it was to the letter. Wow. And hers was she knew what she wanted to do, and she knew the material, but it was always a patchwork yeah. of what order it was going to come out. Okay. You handled the media with such grace and eloquence at the time of your mom's passing. She'd be so proud. Oh, thank you. I how, tried. How did, that experience, how did that experience compare to your father's passing and how she handled that experience? Um, you know, I was really young. Yeah. How old were you? Uh, 18 when my father passed, mm. or I was, turn I was turning 18. I was 17 turning 18. Um, and suicide is really a whole different experience and there's so much anger and frustration and finger pointing and mm -hmm. blame, yeah. blame, a lot yeah. of blame you gotta work through. That I don't, in hindsight I think she obviously handled it beautifully. At the time she could do nothing right. Hmm. So, it, a completely different experience. Also, I wasn't the primary player in it. Yeah. I wasn't having to make these decisions. I wasn't having, it also was before social media. Yeah. When you go through things like that with your mom that you tour, you must, there must be so many times where you are estranged. I can't imagine you guys are that kind of close. How did you get through those times? Uh, we didn't speak for all, or barely spoke for almost a year after my father passed. Wow. And um, we've been very open about it. And there was an incident, and I got myself into a situation that I needed her help. And I called, and she was, she was like, I'm on my way. Wow. Was that a hard call to make? Yes. I had found myself in an abusive relationship, and I had to call her from an emergency room. Oh, wow. And so it was embarrassing on top of everything else. And at that point, we had to decide a, if we wanted to come back together, <clears throat> and how we were going to come back together. And we knew that we loved each other, but we had to decide if we liked each other. How did you decide? Um, and by the way, that's always something my parents used to say to me when I was a teenager, especially like, we love you, we just don't like you very much right now. <laughs> you know, that was always when they like, we'll always love you, but right now, you're not so popular. Right. You know? We know that the car didn't have that scratch, yeah. you know, and you can tell us all you want. We don't like you. Um, work, time, yeah. growing up, understanding each other. Um, and to the end, I, I really, until you have your own child, you don't understand a lot of the decisions your parents make. Mm -hmm. And your child can be your dog. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. Um, but until you have this kind of responsibility for another life mm -hmm. decisions. Sure it really puts a different spin on things. So up until the time that 
I, un I understood a lot more after Cooper was born. But you decide, like, I want her in my life. I have to change me to be around her, and she has to change her to be around me because we're not going to be able to change each other. And you have to make that decision right. to not push each other's buttons, which she never made. She just, you know, her great look. <laughs> she didn't, I'm the, I did the, let's be honest, she's not here anymore, I can be honest. I did the work. <laughs> she one time said to me, we had a huge, huge, and people, this is in the book, a huge fight. Yeah. You know, one of those ones that you remember. We were on the phone, and I said to her, you have no respect for my boundaries. If you talk to any of your friends the way you talk to me, you wouldn't have any of your friends. They'd be like, fuck you, and hang up, and yet you can think you could do that with me. And the next day, she flies out to L.A. and shows up at my house, because she had to be there, and it was probably like 9 in the morning. Yeah. And um, she's going through the refrigerator, and there was a little bit of tension. And she says, you know, Melissa, I've been thinking about what she said. And I thought, <gasps> I got through to her. Yeah. Oh my God, she's had like a moment. She's I've been thinking about what you were saying. Really? What? She goes, I acknowledge you have boundaries. I just choose not to respect them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What do you, where do you go with that? Nowhere. What do you do? Like, That's all it. right. Can I have a bagel? You know? <laughs> All right, uh, the status of the lawsuit, what's happening in that department? It is filed. Yep. A very detailed filing. And now the goal is to continue down the path and to continue to bring public awareness to what goes on in these sort of, not sorry, but in these outpatient situations and to try and bring about some change and to get to the bottom of what happened. I mean, it's really twofold. Yeah. But really the most important thing, I'm not going to get my mother back. That's not going to happen. But if I can make sure that these kinds of things do not happen to anybody else, it lessens the sting. Because it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. My mother touched people. Hmm. So let's at least get something good out of it. Let her make, it, let her make her final change. And this follows up with that question. Why didn't your mother go to a hospital instead of the clinic to have this procedure done? Because we all go to clinics now. I know. Everyone goes to the clinic. You yeah. go to the clinic. I mean, every doctor now has their own surgical center. Mm-hmm. And we also must remember they're for profit. Yeah. And that's why they need to be better regulated. Uh, what is the status of your mother's apartment? For sale. <laughs> Anybody? She's been, she's, been, she's been trying to sell that for a little bit, wasn't she, before? Kind of. She, she of. humored our business people, our business manager, but yeah, 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 it's for sale for this much money and I won't negotiate. That's not really for sale. Right. And it wasn't like a realistic number. If someone wants to walk in and give me $50 million, sure, they can have it. How, how lovely of you. Describe that apartment because it was so quintessential, your mom, the way she did it. She converted a ballroom in a white stone that originally was a private residence. <clears throat> so it had two-story ceilings. And it was completely a wreck when she bought it, and they did a bunch of research with the architects and all this stuff, and recreated all the original moldings and the gilt and everything. So it's just, you walk in, it's this vast space, and you go, whoa. And then you realize, and then it's got all these little kind of rooms off of it. So like her bedroom was originally the men's changing room, mm -hmm. and the, in the hallway, which was open, was the musician's gallery. It was... It was like walking into a museum. Mm -hmm. It was really, you've seen it. It's, how do you even describe it? It was like a museum. It's beautiful. It's yeah. awe-inspiring when you walk in. It really is. But I've now <clears throat> defined realistically. I've priced it that someone might actually buy it. Oh, really? Yeah. And I'm willing to negotiate. <laughs> <laughs> Your mom would be proud. I see. She didn't really try and sell it. I mean, let's be honest. Okay. <laughs> My grandmother, my mother, my aunt, all told me Joan Rivers was someone to look up to starting when I was little, still really little. How does her philanthropy influence you as a philanthropist? My parents, both of them, you know, the, it's again, the power of celebrity. My mom made sure, yes, she would support lots of things, but the causes that she really supported, she legitimately supported. Yes, she did. She not only gave time, she, not only gave money, she gave time. And ta real time, <clears throat> not photo op time. Mm -hmm. Like with God's love, we deliver. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We would actually deliver food on the holidays. Uh, Guide Dogs for the Blind, which was my father's big charity. 
she very quietly continued to donate and participate long after my father passed away and would go up and tour and see these things and meet people and really know about her charities. That was the thing, and I talk about that a lot in the book, which is if you can't give money, you can give sweat equity. Mm -hmm. That matters too. And if you're gonna do it, roll up your sleeves and work. It's just as important as, as, as money. And you see celebrities putting their names on everything, and that's wonderful if it brings awareness. Mm -hmm. But my mother's whole thing was know your charities, know what they're doing, know what's happening, and really participate. Your mom was one of the most well-read people around. Yes. Every time she came on the show, she would ask us, oh, have you read this? Have you read that? How, how did that influence her? She always had books on her side table, I'd imagine. Um, again, and it goes back to her childhood and my father. That was one thing they bonded over. Our whole family loves nonfiction. Mm -hmm. We don't read a lot of fiction. You couldn't come up and say, did you read this novel? Chances are nine of us had. Um, she, she just, she read everything. She was so, she was an English lit major. I was a history major. My dad was studied history. So you could talk to her about any century or this or that. And she had some sort of information about it, mm -hmm. which made her just so interesting. But then this is a good trick. Whatever the big books were for the season, she made sure she read them quickly and early. So you always have something to talk about at a fancy dinner party. Yeah, you could always have you read, you know, <laughs> and you look smart, and then you, you know, and if you have to, just like you know, read the reviews or find like one that's like the product description on Amazon. <laughs> hey, it tells you enough. No one's gonna ask you for like what happened on page seventy-two. Did she always feel like she fit in? No, she, she didn't. Never, never felt she fit fit in in the in the entertainment community. Never felt she really fit in in the. Social community. Really? Yeah. Would she, she just felt like an outsider trying to make her way in? Or? We always, and I still feel that we were always still slightly against the glass, but that's why you can make jokes. Right. That's why you can, you know, there's a great saying, which is, um, uh, oh, I gotta get it right, because if I mess it up, it's live with the masses, eat, uh, uh, laugh with the masses, eat with the classes laugh with the classes, eat with the masses. Yeah. You gotta know, you gotta be part of the outside mm -hmm. to be able to have humor and perspective. Which, which was her appeal. Absolutely. All over. Yeah, I mean, seriously, the, this is, we were invited to the Vanity Fair Oscar party once in all the years we did the red carpet, and we did not get invited the year that she was in the magazine. You're kidding. No. Why? We never get invited, I still don't get invited to anything. <laughs> seriously, I get invited to one big party a year. Clive Davis, who was a friend of my mom's, the Grammy party. I don't even, I get no, we, we never got invited to, well, Elton John's party, okay. we would get invited to. But honestly, like, we would joke, we're like, oh yeah, we're, it was like, you see you at Vanity Fair, we're always like, yeah, no, we're working, you can't go. He's like, no, we're not freaking invited. <laughs> After your mom passed, did people come out of the woodwork and reach out to you and try yes. to, so they did. So the people who were not so inviting before became inviting after. Um, I still didn't get invited to any of the good parties this year. Oh so, I mean, God. did they reach out and say, I'm so sorry? Yeah. Can I come to the party? No. Oh, come on. But it's okay, you know? What is most important for you to have your son know about your mom? That she loved him. Hmm. That she loved him. That he was everything to her. There's a beautiful picture of her cradling him when he was a baby. Was she there when he was, uh, when he was born? Yes, she was. <laughs> of course she was. <laughs> she was a little controlling. She, even then? Even then, um, when I was having Cooper, I, anyway, there were all these different colors. So all of a sudden we're like, I'm like, they're like, do you feel any pressure? I'm like, mm, no, and I buzz there. I'm like, maybe. And they're like, oh, it's baby time. All of a sudden, so like the room turns into this whole thing. And, this one comes in and that one comes in because it's a celebrity, you've got the head of every department standing by. And my mother had gone into the bathroom because God forbid she, she needed to touch up her makeup because <laughs> she didn't want, you know, she didn't want anyone seeing her that we'd been up all night. And they had moved a table and she was like jammed in the bathroom and she couldn't get the door open. And by the time she came, they had taken apart the bed and this was here and that monitor and you know, the joke, the machine that goes ping was there. And she's like standing there with her big giant makeup bag and like, spinning in a circle, all in Ralph Lauren, by the way. <laughs> and I looked at her, I said, leave, stay, just get out of the way. I don't care, just move. 
and she somehow wedged herself around all these machines over all the cords and stilettos. Of course. Tick, 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 to somehow get behind the bed <laughs> over my shoulder. <laughs> How did she get there? <laughs> it was like a sea of people. So yeah, she was right there, and then my ex-husband cut the cord, and they said to her, would you like to cut the, also cut the cord? And she literally went like this, sure, because she didn't want to disappoint them. And went like, <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, what I talk about in the book, he quickly, within moments, became her favorite accessory. <laughs> That's the last time I saw my child for days. When you look at that picture that you see on that monitor of your mom mm -hmm. uh, holding him, that, that must be one of the sweetest uh, memories you have, huh? But notice if you look at her hand, right? That's, she's not letting go. No, she's she, got that, she's cradling him like a football and she's a receiver in the end zone. She is not letting that child go. Death grip. So how are you? How do you feel? Um, I mean, you've been on this whirlwind book tour and the good part about a book tour is you're busy all the time. Yes. And the bad part is, you, you know, sometimes when you hit the brakes, the world rushes in. So are you a little worried about what's going to happen when it all stops? Um, I held everything very much at bay till about six weeks ago. And I think when I s knew the book tour was coming, I hit the wall, finally. Everyone's like, when are you gonna hit the wall? Oh, I've hit it. Mm -hmm. um, what was that like? Anger, crying, sadness, everything. I felt like it was right after I had Cooper when you're so hormonal and like you can't watch a commercial without sobbing hysterically. Yeah. I was like that, like literally like I would be driving and it just, <gasps> I mean, and it just, it got, it, there were a couple, more than a couple very bad moments. Yeah. And um, I go in my closet, which your, is, in my, I have a walk-in closet. Okay. And I shut the door. Huh. And I sit on my closet floor, lay on my closet floor and just cry. Huh. And it's I, ebbing and flowing. I'm kind of in the middle, which just happens to coincide with the tour, which is fantastic for my makeup artist. <laughs> um, I'm kind of in the middle of it finally hitting me. Wow. But it, it's okay. It's supposed to hit you. It's one of the things we talk about with grief counseling is you're normal. Right. You are normal. Everybody grieves. It sucks. It is what it is, there is no way around it, it's a process, and don't fight it. Just go with it and you will get through it. Ladies and gentlemen, Melissa Rivers. Thank you. Thank you. you are. Was that okay? Okay. Oh, you are, I love you more Thank now. You. By the way, we don't own that ring. <laughs> they don't own the ring. We don't own that ring. That was lent for the photo shoot. All right. So Melissa is going to be signing some books. Where is she going to be? Next door. Next door. So she's ready to sign. We love thank you, you Melissa. Everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are so good. Okay. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92iondemand.org.